and it probably won't surprise you to hear that I am not a very ritualistic person. Even in our worship services, I do not like to focus on ritual. In my defense, it would seem Jesus was not very ritualistic either. He was more real and raw than ritualistic and refined. In the church, a ritual might be described as something repeatedly done a certain way for religious reasons. And let me hasten to say that some ritual is required. While certain church traditions have added ritual upon ritual upon ritual, in truth, Jesus left us with only two rituals, both clearly commanded by him, even including specific instructions on how they should be done. Because of this, we refer to those two rituals as ordinances, meaning that we simply are not allowed to skip them or are not free to do them however we might wish. The two ordinances of the church are baptism and communion, also known as the Lord's Supper. We will share in the Lord's Supper near the end of our time today. I have found that even people who have been in church their entire lives can get foggy on what this communion thing is all about. And those who have not been in church as much may have never heard a thorough explanation of it in the first place. Either way, I hope today we'll breathe some new life into this important part of what we do as an assembly of believers. At Go Church, we take the Lord's Supper as a body about four times each year, and we encourage our small groups to do it regularly as well. Go group leaders that are here, future leaders, apprentice leaders, pay attention today. Feel free to take notes. Use your listening guide from today to help you to lead your group to take communion together in the right way. I would say at least two or three times a year would be great. Today we're going to be looking at the primary passage of Scripture where we can learn about the Lord's Supper, that being the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. But first let me give you some background. The original Lord's Supper has also been called the Last Supper because it was literally the last supper Jesus ate with his disciples before he was betrayed and arrested that very night in order to be crucified the next day. When we practice the Lord's Supper or communion today, what we are actually doing, at least partially, is reenacting the last supper that Jesus shared with his disciples in the upper room. Now, the gospel accounts tell us that this last supper took place within their celebration of the annual Jewish Passover feast itself, a celebration of the exodus of the Jews from slavery, uh, from Egyptian slavery. There was already a ton of symbolism in the Jewish Passover feast as God had prescribed it, symbolism that only pointed back, uh, not only pointed back to the exodus, but also clearly pointed forward to the crucifixion of Christ, though the people had not known it. For instance, you may remember that the key to the Passover was the sacrificial lamb whose blood had been placed on the wooden doorposts of their homes so that the angel of death would pass over them and they would be spared, which of course they were. But this all pointed forward to the fact that Jesus would later be called the Lamb of God by whose blood we would be all, also be saved only this time from eternal death. In both cases, the key to salvation was faith in blood that was spilled onto wooden doorposts and a door of crossbeam. This is only one of many ways the Passover feast had been pointing forward to Christ for centuries. But that night in the upper room during what we now call the Last Supper, Jesus added some new twists to the traditional festivities of Passover. At some point in the evening after they had eaten at least some of the traditional Passover food, Jesus broke protocol. He was prone to do that. And he applied the Passover symbolism to himself. Making the broken bread and the cup of juice to speak of his own sacrifice to come the next day. 
Jesus very boldly claimed these elements as being representative of His body and His blood given for us. He said to His followers, I want you to continue to eat this bread and and drink this cup no longer in remembrance. Major shift, no longer in remembrance of those little Passover lambs from the Exodus, but now in remembrance of me. That command straight from his lips is the main reason we're still observing the Lord's Supper together in his church some 2,000 years later. And that concludes what I have to share about the background of the Lord's Supper today. For the rest of our time, we will look at what it all means for our church right now and what it can mean for you this morning. In addition to the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, the primary scripture passage that informs us about the why we should and the how to continue this practice in the church. Again, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In this passage, I see four purposes and one warning. Hopefully after today, you'll possess a very solid understanding of exactly what should and should not be happening in your heart every time you get the chance to observe the Lord's Supper. Let's read our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, referring to the Corinthian church's terribly lax communion, communion methodology, Paul writes, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Well, I could preach a sermon right there. Are there churches that come together for the worse instead of the better? I'm afraid that could be possible. It was possible. It is possible. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, and, uh, who, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together, eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. The first thing I want you to notice is the source of Paul's information. Look at verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Paul claims to have received this information directly from the Lord. By the way, if I ever claim that, you need to find a new pastor. That doesn't happen today. This happened for the apostles. Paul says, I received this directly from the Lord. That's really pretty incredible when you think about it. Remember, unlike the other apostles, Paul was not present with Jesus before the resurrection. But just appeared, Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection and after he had ascended into heaven. Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus and called him into a special ministry to be a missionary church planner and the apostle to the Gentiles. And then came a period of several years of preparation where the Bible indicates that Paul received further revelations from Christ, the kind that became Scripture. Paul, who had been the worst enemy of Christians up to that point, met Jesus and became an apostle, a miracle worker, actually, even a writer of Scripture. Now, I want to briefly pause and say something at this point. I want to say that if Jesus makes apostles out of his worst enemies, what can he make out of you? No one is too far gone to be saved 
No one is too far gone to become a spiritual giant. I just felt like somebody needed to hear that today. Back to our text. We see it stated plainly that Paul was given clear information on the Lord's Supper, and he was given this information directly from the Lord. Paul also points out that he was taught, that he's taught the Corinthian church about this before. It already delivered this information to the Corinthians previously. But guess what? They apparently needed to hear it again. For the record, this will be the third time I've preached this message here at Go Church. In fact, there are two messages that I will preach over and over again at this church. And those two messages cover the two ordinances. In fact, next week we'll talk about baptism. If you got somebody that needs to hear it, some of you know the sermon I'm talking about. Every year I preach it, people decide to get baptized because they finally understand. Bring people who need to hear it. If there's anything that bears repeating in the church, it's biblical instruction about communion and baptism. So Paul opens his discussion of the topic by saying, based on the information I received from the Lord, I have concluded that what you are doing with the Lord's Supper in your church is totally messed up. And honestly, if you look at the whole church today across the world, I'm afraid he would still say the same thing. We need to make sure we are the exception. Or there might just be hell to pay. If I can raise your eyebrows with a literally true statement. Looking further into the text, it isn't hard to see how the Corinthian church has deviated. In a nutshell, their issues are twofold. One, they are being selfish and divisive with something intended to promote unity. And two, they've allowed the practice to become a meaningless ritual at best, or an out-of-control party at worst. They have completely forgotten what the Lord's Supper was really all about. The Corinthian church needed to be corrected. So let's see what we can pull out of this text in terms of the real meaning of the Lord's Supper. First, let's unpack what I'm calling the four purposes of the Lord's Supper. The first purpose is this. Number one, to share in His community. To share in his community, we see this point largely in Paul's correction from verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. That is sarcasm in case you wondered. Absolutely clear. It's sarcasm. This is the exact reason that factions form. So that we can show that we're better than the ones who are wrong. Verse 20, therefore when you meet together it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You may think you're, you may call it the Lord's Supper, it ain't the Lord's Supper. For when you're eating each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? All right, so what can we pick up from these verses? First, notice that in the Corinthian church, the Lord's Supper was part of a larger meal. Their practice was to share a common fellowship meal, and as a part of that meal, they would include the Lord's Supper. Now, where did they get that idea? Well, they got it from one good place and one bad place. On the one hand, they got this idea from the example of Christ, because remember, the Last Supper was an actual supper, a feast even, the Passover feast. And the juice and bread in remembrance was only a portion of what took place that evening. The context was an intimate fellowship dinner among Jesus and his closest disciples. They were sharing a holiday meal together like family in a home. And they took the bread and the cup in that context. So that's a good reason to include a meal with communion as they were doing. This is one reason I love to see the Lord's Supper practiced in our go groups. In homes along with a meal, because that's the way it was done originally. But on the other hand, the Corinthian church was very much influenced by the Roman culture. And here again, they had been thrown off. The Roman culture was all about these big parties called convivias or symposiums, where one of the main points of the event was in preserving the local pecking order. These Roman feasts followed strict protocols, the most important one being that the rich and important people were to eat first gobbling up the best food and drink, while those who were less, uh, with less were invited to eat the scraps, more or less. Now, the poorest were not even invited 
In that culture, this was part of how one was supposed to be motivated to succeed. There was a reward for success in Roman cultural protocol. And that you got to eat first. You got the special seat. The Corinthians church, uh, Corinthian church was made up of people who were accustomed to this practice. And they were bringing it with them into their church gatherings. Notice that God was so offended by this that he had been pouring out discipline upon the church. Some had become sick and others had even died from sickness because what they were doing was so offensive to God. More on that later. So on the one hand, the Corinthians had started off well by including a meal um, along with their Lord's Supper observance. Not a bad idea at all as this helps accomplish the first purpose of it, sharing in his community. But on the other hand, they were doing poorly in that they had made the supper into a typical Roman party complete with the kind of cultural favoritism that left poor people groveling and wealthy people glutted. This brought the ire of Paul and led him to write in verse 34 that if they were not able to get the fellowship meal part of it straightened out, maybe they should start eating at home before they came. So that, physically satisfied, they might have a chance to observe the Lord's Supper rightly as a church. To reiterate, understand that in early church practice, the Lord's Supper typically included a fellowship meal, actually referred to as a love feast in the book of Jude. So while in Corinth, this facet of the practice had become a problem, we should still keep in mind that a meal was originally included. Why? Because this helps us understand that part of the purpose, that fellowship, that community, having a way to celebrate the unity we have as one body in Christ. And this was certainly the case for Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. The Lord's Supper should involve a certain kind of bonding between members of His church, both with each other and with Him. Whose supper is it? The Lord's Supper. And His followers, as His followers, you and I are invited while we believe the elements themselves are symbolic, His presence in the room is literal. Together with each other, we experience Christ in a powerful way as we remember Him through this method that He instituted on the night of His crucifixion. Again, the first purpose of the Lord's Supper is to share in His community. Now, let me be real. In my opinion, it's hard for us to fully experience what Jesus had in mind for communion within the typical modern worship service. For one, we can't or we don't try to have a meal in this setting. It's a worship service. Secondly, we are still all sitting in rows. You know, we're, we're just all turned this way. I'm the only one talking. In some ways, this is just not the setting where the Lord's Supper can fully function as it should. Maybe that sounds like heresy if you've associated the Lord's Supper with a sense of formality uh, and traditional pageantry, but if you read about it in the Bible, you may get a different picture. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be an actual supper. Only in the modern church have we reduced it to a little wafer of bread and a tiny cup of juice. Now, while we can still accomplish the other purposes we will discuss through this modern methodology, I won't lie, something is absolutely missing in the way we mostly do it on Sunday mornings in church today. This is why in every church that I have pastored over the last 25 years, I've encouraged our small groups to observe communion together in their homes on a regular basis. Again, go groups are encouraged to take the Lord's Supper together. And when you do, I'd encourage you to enjoy a meal first. Because the first purpose of the Lord's Supper is to share in Christ's community. And there's nothing like food to promote fellowship. By the way, where did they mostly celebrate the Lord's Supper in the earliest church? The first few chapters of Acts makes it clear that the earliest church took the Lord's Supper in smaller groups meeting in homes. Where the Bible says they also met for meals and fellowship and prayer. That's how they did it. That's how Jesus did it. And I believe that's at least one way that we should do it. The second purpose of the Lord's Supper is this, to remember His sacrifice. 
Let's pick this up in verse 24. Paul writes, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Growing up Baptist, I think this was the part we got right. We were really good at the remembrance part. And that's a good thing because remembrance is definitely the heart and soul of the Lord's Supper. And what did Jesus really want us to remember? Remember. He wanted us to remember his sacrifice. His body and blood given for us. He wanted us to remember him on the cross. I've actually heard professors teach that the Lord's Supper should be mostly a joyous celebration because as we know, Jesus didn't stay dead. And also, he is returning. I've heard the point made that the Lord's Supper should never be somber, but much more of a happy occasion. That's an interesting thought, but I disagree. Mostly. As I'll share in a moment, there's, there is a celebratory peace to the Lord's Supper that should come in the fellowship and again at the end, but the spiritual guts of what we are doing with the bread and the juice is indeed somber. I believe Jesus wanted us to take time to memorialize exactly what our redemption cost him. To ponder the gravity of God actually taking on flesh so that he could bleed. So that he could die for our sin. Not only to die, but to be tortured to death. I believe Jesus expected there to be sorrow at his supper. I believe tears are appropriate. Jesus was God in the flesh. That means that he knew me from the cross. Jesus bled and he suffered and he died for me and for the whole world. But he knew I would be one of the ones to believe. And he determined that I was worth it. If you are one of his, the same is true for you. If you don't take time to visualize and remember Christ on the cross, and yes, even to picture his broken body and his shed blood, the real physical sacrifice made for you personally, then you have missed the primary point of the Lord's Supper. See? See his body in the bread. See his blood than the juice. My sin cost Jesus his life. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God who was killed to receive God's justice and endure his wrath in my place for me. Instead of me, this is what I think of when I eat the bread, when I drink the juice. This is what and who I remember. Jesus broken and bleeding on the cross for me. In the Lord's Supper, we're called to remember His sacrifice. The third purpose of the Lord's Supper is to celebrate <clears throat> His new covenant. Verse 25, in the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every believer should understand the importance of covenant in Scripture. Our God is a covenantal God. He has revealed Himself throughout human history as a God who makes promises and a God who keeps those promises. In the Bible, a covenant is basically a promise from God to His people. Our hearts should be filled with thanksgiving over the fact that God would even care to make promises to us in the first place. Generally speaking, there is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or we might say the Old Covenants, plural, and the New Covenant, singular, all of the Old Covenants are fulfilled in the New Covenant. There were covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham, and Moses, and Levi, and David. And those covenants were extended to their people, to our people. But all of the old covenants were incomplete without Christ. They mostly pointed forward to what would be accomplished by Jesus, that which would be called the new covenant. The new covenant began to be promised by prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, perhaps most specifically detailed in Jeremiah chapter 31, where God inspired his prophet to write these words, Behold, days are coming. By the way, we are in those days. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, 
When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by hand. Bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart and I will write it and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. By the way, just briefly, most of that is fulfilled when the Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart, when you're saved. Notice that the new covenant would be all about the grace of God. The new covenant would include an opportunity for human beings to have a very personal relationship with, with Yahweh, which is mind-blowing. This covenant would be about forgiveness. And see, Jesus is the one who made all of these things possible by paying the price for our sin on the cross. The new covenant is the new deal in Christ, and it's a whole lot better than the old deal. Back to our text, Jesus said in verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Talk about loading up a sentence with meaning. I wonder if any of the disciples were as blown away by this statement as they should have been. Jesus, who is sitting at the same table with them, is saying, the time of the new covenant is now. More than that, Jesus says, the new covenant you've been waiting for is actually contained in this cup. And this cup represents my blood. Then he told them to drink from it as if to thereby receive the new covenant upon themselves. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, how did the blood of Christ usher in the new covenant? I can only touch on this, but the bottom line is that our righteous God had decided since before the world began that the blood of His Son would be enough. It would be enough to take away the sin of the world, as it says. This atonement for our sin is a gift available to all. But it's made effective to those who receive it by faith. Quoting Leviticus, Hebrews 9.27 says, There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. But if the shed blood of goats and lambs and that sacrificial system offered some kind of forgiveness in the Old Covenant, how much more the blood of God's Son in the New Covenant. One purpose of the Lord's Supper is to celebrate the new covenant of God, which was made possible through the shed blood of Jesus. I look at one other little piece of our text that points to the celebration aspect of this new covenant. At the end of verse 26, we see these three words, until he comes. Until he comes. So much is there, especially in terms of celebration. Understand that we are only to observe this ordinance in remembrance of the death until he comes. Which, of course, means that He is coming. Take note that there will be no further Lord's Supper observance in heaven, but rather something called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb, which will be all party, no memorial. We're told to practice the ordinance of the Lord's Supper until He comes. But the fact that He is coming ought to turn our mourning into dancing by the time that we are finished. See, the new covenant in His blood is a promise Remember, that's what a covenant is, a promise from God. And this is the promise of eternal life with Him. Fulfilled when He comes. The new covenant ultimately is that He is, he is coming to rescue His people and bring us into glory with Him. Now that is cause for celebration. The gospel accounts tell us that after all this, the disciples sang a hymn together before going out. This would have almost certainly been the Jewish Hallel, which was a hallelujah hymn of celebration. We will sing before we leave today as well. Told Connor, make sure it's a joyous song today. In the Lord's Supper, not only do we remember His sacrifice, but we also celebrate the new covenant that is ours in Christ. The fourth purpose of the Lord's Supper is to proclaim his death. Notice the proclamation is not the same thing as remembrance. 
Remembrance is inward, while proclamation is outward. Remembrance is invisible, while proclamation is visible. Remembrance is internal, while proclamation is external. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Proclamation is one of the most powerful components of the Lord's Supper. I see two important facets to this, two ends that are accomplished by the proclamation that happens through the Lord's Supper. First, this proclamation is a statement of faith. Not unlike baptism. In the Lord's Supper, you are powerfully proclaiming your faith. Not in your mother's faith, your father's faith, your pastor's faith, or even the church's faith. Your faith in Christ. You are publicly proclaiming it as you take the Lord's Supper. You're not proclaiming faith in the saving power of bread and juice, but of the sacrifice of the one they represent. Now, what does this mean for those in our midst who have not yet trusted in Christ alone as Savior? Well, if that's you, it really means you may want to simply let the elements pass on by. It's up to you, and I'm not all that worried about whether you take it or not. Some people think I'm supposed to sternly warn you not to take it if you don't believe, but frankly, it won't change anything in terms of your position before God, whether you take it or not. Sadly, without faith in Christ, you're already in deep trouble, regardless of what you do with the bread and juice today. As we'll discuss in a moment, the warning at the end of this passage is for believers not those who remain unconvinced. So what I'm saying is that if you aren't sure about Jesus, you may choose not to take the Lord's Supper since what the rest of us are doing with it is publicly proclaiming our faith in Him. The choice is yours. There's no pressure from me either way. We all love each other here. We're just happy that there might be someone here that's still trying to figure it out. Still make, seeing what they believe. I'm glad you're here. And that takes me right into the second truth of this facet of the Lord's Supper. This proclamation is evangelism. Telling the good news. That's what evangelism is. Proclaiming the Lord's death is as evangelistic as it gets. In other words, this is a way to share the good news with those who have not heard or have not believed. When we take the Lord's Supper as a church, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Together we declare to any observers in our midst that we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we take these elements and consume them, we proclaim that we believe in the saving power of Jesus' death on the cross. That's evangelism or outreach or mission accomplishment at its best. As Paul wrote in another place, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I agree with John Wesley on this, who said it is possible for a person to experience salvation during the Lord's Supper. Now, Wesley did not mean that the act of taking the Lord's Supper would save someone in a ritualistic sense, but he meant that since the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel, someone might just be saved by responding to that proclamation with faith during the Lord's Supper, that a person might actually become a believer in his or her heart in the midst of this proclamation of the gospel. I'm here to tell you I know of that happening. Earlier I said, there may be hell to pay if we don't do this or don't do this rightly. I said that was literally true. See, I am one who believes God has somehow made our evangelism consequential. Our proclamation of the gospel or the lack thereof matters. How will they know unless we tell them? Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, the salvation of Christ, the reality of Christ. And when we proclaim the Lord's death in this way, sometimes someone's eternal destiny changes. Maybe a person who's undecided 
decides nonetheless to take the bread. And in taking the bread, this person comes to the moment of sincere faith in Christ. Why not? If one can come to faith through a tract or pamphlet, can he or she not come to faith through the proclamation of the gospel that happens through the practice of the Lord's Supper? What could be more appropriate? The Lord's Supper is one of the most evangelistic things that we do because, because through it we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. All of this is why I'm not afraid to observe the Lord's Supper in a Sunday morning worship service where likely some of us are not yet believers. I do not think the early church kept the Lord's Supper closed off from the observation of unbelievers. I believe that in doing this openly, we proclaim the Lord's sacrificial death to everyone watching. Scripture tells us that proclamation is part of the point in the Lord's Supper. Proclamation is evangelistic by definition. Now before we get into the warning, notice the verbs and the four purposes. Share, remember, celebrate, proclaim. Are you starting to see what's so special about the Lord's Supper? Share, remember, celebrate, proclaim. This is multi-sensory sensory worship at its best, instituted and invented by Christ Himself for His church. In the Lord's Supper, there is something to see, something to feel, something to taste, something to touch, to smell, and even something to hear. We share, we remember, we celebrate, we proclaim. I look forward to sharing in this act of worship with you in just a moment. But first, in our text, we also have one warning. Let's read the last part of the passage again from verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you'll not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. Boil that all down. And remembering the context, here is the warning. Believers who participate in the Lord's Supper unworthily will be disciplined. Believers who participate in the Lord's Supper unworthily in an unworthy manner will be disciplined. Here Paul is saying, you Christians in Corinth, this Corinthian church, you have failed to practice the Lord's Supper conscientiously. And so the purposes of Christ have been degraded and lost. Rather than experiencing community, you've destroyed community with favoritism and selfishness. Rather than remembering the body and blood, you've focused on the party. Rather than celebrating the new covenant, you've taken it for granted. Rather than proclaiming the Lord's death, you proclaim nothing at all. That's what Paul means when he warns against taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Those are the things he just told them they'd been doing wrong. They've been acting flippantly. They've forgotten the purposes of what they're doing. And so, as it says in verse 27, they are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What does that mean? It means they profaned something that should have been revered as holy. They've actually made light of the cross of Christ. They've been disrespectful of the greatest sacrifice ever made. And now they're being disciplined for their behavior. I mentioned that this is a warning for Christians, for believers. How do I know that? Well, besides the fact that this is a letter written to a church in the first place, we can also see this in verse 32. But when we are judged, by the way, the word judgment, it's kind of like the word world in the Bible. It can mean a lot of different things. Are we talking about the world like the people in the world? Or are we talking about the world like sinfulness? Makes a big difference which one it is in those verses. Same way with judgment. It can mean a lot of different things. You've got to look at the context. In this case, we're talking about a judgment that Christians can receive, which is discipline. 
It's not eternal. It's not, um, you, you can't not come back from it. It's not wrath. It's not condemnation. It's a different kind of judgment. It's a kind of judgment that's discipline, as it says. But when we're judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. There's a big difference between the discipline of believers and the condemnation of the rest of the world. The Bible never talks about us being condemned as believers. Discipline is for correction, not condemnation. God's discipline is meant to help us change. We discipline our children. This is about discipline, something God definitely uses to teach and correct those who are His children. And there's no problem with that when we think about something like sickness because people can come back from sickness. By the way, not all sickness is discipline. Make sure you get that. But there's no problem with it because people can come back from sickness so we can see that as discipline. But we do run into a real challenge in the text where Paul says, and a number sleep. Or in some translations, and some have even died. Which is what that means. You could ask, how is death discipline? And I would agree with your question. In my opinion, death is not discipline. But rather, if directly caused by God, death falls into the category of wrath. Something the Bible clearly reserves for unbelievers. But some teachers have used this little phrase, and a number sleep, as their proof text that God disciplines some believers to the point of death. Personally, I do not accept that. It's not a huge deal if you do. We're not going to divide over it. I do not believe God directly kills his own children. Such a belief radically affects a person's view of God and has serious consequences. I'm not going to live my life afraid that I might cross the line to the point of being executed by my heavenly father. Disciplined, yes. Killed, no. So, what do I do with this phrase, and some have even died. Well, let me start by saying this is the only passage I know of in the entire New Testament that even seems to possibly indicate that God could discipline one of his own to the point of death. If you're wondering about Ananias and Sapphira, they were clearly not true believers. As is seen in the fact that the Bible says Satan entered their heart. I don't know how you ever get around that and say they're believers. And so this really is the only difficult text for those of us who believe God does not kill his own children. Second, it's not the same thing to say that God kills someone as it is to say that he might allow a sickness to eventually lead to death. See, I do not believe God hyper-controls everything in the universe. I believe God allows many things to run their course without his direct involvement. Right, I'm not a determinist. Sometimes what he allows includes sickness. It's a cursed earth. To allow is not the same thing as to cause. Not at all. Let's say that God disciplines a believer with sickness. That certainly is indicated in our text. And let's say that believer does not repent or change. And so God allows the sickness to continue. And eventually that sickness kills the person. They die. Does that mean God actively chose to put them to death? I don't think so. In fact, we're all going to die eventually, right? We all know that eventually God will not save us from whatever it is that's going to kill us. Does that mean he killed us? There is a huge difference between God choosing to allow a believer's choices to lead to death and God choosing to intentionally put to death his own forgiven, redeemed, covered by the blood and dwelled by the Spirit son or daughter. Why am I chasing this rabbit? Because some very popular teachers that some of you listen to and read have said that God can discipline a believer even unto death. This passage is their proof text. I want you to know I don't agree with them. God disciplines believers, but I do not believe he kills them. And now I need to try to steer back onto the road. I like going off-road myself. I'm an off-roader, but I got to get back on the road. And the fact is that these believers were being disciplined by God because they had so trampled on the cross through their flippant and irreverent treatment of the Lord's Supper. 
My guess is we'd all rather avoid this kind of discipline, whether it leads to death or not. So how do we do that? Our text says we must examine ourselves and judge the body rightly. That's why there should be a time for both self-reflection and for thinking about what we're doing. We actually did that earlier in our time of prayer. Before observing the Lord's Supper, we must make sure we're not about to practice this in an unworthy manner. Serious business. That's the primary reason for this message today that I'm giving you. And I would hope this entire time together has helped you to reflect. But here's another important qualifier. We're not, to being, we're not being told to make sure that we are worthy before taking the Lord's Supper. None of us are ever worthy. Paul is talking about making sure we're doing this in a way that is meaningful and purposeful, that we're remembering the body and blood of Jesus here, that is to judge the body rightly, who it is, what those things represent, his body. And to examine ourselves to make sure we are understanding the significance of what we're doing. The context is to practice communion in a worthy manner. In a worthy manner, not to practice it as worthy people. Many churches have misunderstood this. I once wrote a 120-page paper on the Lord's Supper for a doctoral seminar. In my research, I found that in certain closed communion churches of about a century ago, literally no one would take the Lord's Supper, like for years, because everyone had decided that nobody was worthy. It really happened. And so it wasn't worth the risk to them because they might die if they took it and they weren't worthy. It's a fundamental misinterpretation of the text. This is not a warning to make sure you are worthy before taking the Lord's Supper. This is just not what Paul is saying. The context makes clear that his warning is against taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And part of that is examining yourself. Really, the warning is to remember and practice the purposes rather than to adulterate the event into a party as they were doing or to make it a meaningless ritual, as I'm afraid we sometimes do today. The warning is to be serious about this, to do it for the right reason. The warning is to do this in a manner that shares in community, in a manner so as to remember his sacrifice, in a manner to celebrate his new covenant and to proclaim his death until he comes. Each of us here today ought to take this warning to heart. Make sure we take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. That's precisely why I preach this message. So let's put it into practice. I do I have some people that are ready to serve um, the elements. If you would, go ahead and begin to do that. So before I go uh, on and send some prayer and and in talking about this, I do have to take a practical moment and say that these, um, um, the way we, the, the packaging is kind of tricky. Uh, there's a little, a small piece of cellophane over the bread, and then there's a, the thicker covering is over the juice. So you kind of have to peel back the really thin one first to get to the bread, and then in a few minutes you can peel the other one back to get to the juice. Okay. Um, yeah, this, this goes, this, one of these, I don't know. I don't, we, things that COVID changed things, let's be honest. I mean, I don't know if we need to let it stay changed or not, but, uh, I used to let people, you know, break it together and, you know, anyway, so, uh, just, uh, that's how that works. So if you don't, we'll just hold on to it for a minute. You can go ahead and open to get to the bread. So you're ready. Let me pray. Father, we've spent this uh, entire service really uh, examining ourselves and, and, and getting to a place where we can judge the body rightly, meaning uh, understand what it is that we're holding, uh, what it represents, the seriousness of it. Um, but even in this moment as folks have in their hand these elements that over 2,000 years ago um, well about 2,000 years ago that you told us to use 
to remember such amazing things as your body and your blood. Help us to see your body in the bread. Help us to see your blood in the juice. Even though maybe it's not a pleasant thought. It's not a pleasant thought. This is the price of our sin. This was the cost. And if you gave your body and your life, we can at least think about it for a minute. We can at least remember it. We can at least thank you. Help us to do this in a worthy manner. Lord Jesus, all we can do is thank you. And we can thank you by how we live as well and living for you, putting you first. So help this act of worship not stop as we walk out the doors in a moment. But let us go out and live in a manner worthy of our calling, worthy of our salvation, worthy of your blood and your body. And God, more than ever, I think about this phrase, until he comes. In some ways, I don't know if we could ever be completely ready, but God, get us ready because we need to be ready for the things that are coming. Things that will be everything from birth pangs to persecution and suffering, but all that lead to those three precious words until He comes. And our faith will be made sight. And we will be caught up together in the clouds and we'll be given new bodies that are made to last forever right after the dead in Christ have risen. We look forward to that glorious day with great anticipation, the blessed hope of your church. We put our faith in you, not in humans, not in human ingenuity and human methods and human solutions. You are the solution. You will make a new heaven and new earth. And our hope and our trust is in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.